Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review Podcast. This is Jason Elkubi, President and CEO of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Our guest today is Bob Blue. He's the Chair, President, and Chief Executive Officer of Dominion Energy. Dominion is an integrated energy utility headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, that operates in 15 states and provides energy to 7 million customers. He's been with Dominion since 2005 starting out in the company's public policy department and holding several positions before being named CEO in 2020. Bob, I'm delighted that you're with us today. How are you? I'm great, Jason. Thanks for having me. Just to kind of get things kicked off, tell us a little bit more about Dominion Energy. I described kind of the broad scope of it, but take a few minutes and kind of set the table for the organization that you run and the footprint and the various capabilities. Sure. A lot of people think of us as the electric utility for a number of Virginians, which is true, but our total scope is a little bit broader than that. We serve 7 million homes and businesses with electricity and natural gas. About half of those customers are natural gas customers in Utah, Ohio, and the Carolinas. And then the other half are electric customers in Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. We operate electric generation. We operate the wires that provide service to people's homes and businesses, and we provide natural gas through our pipelines to homes and businesses in those states that I just described. We also operate some electric generation in states where we do not serve homes and businesses directly, but we sell that electricity to utilities who do. So all that adds up to what we believe is a diverse portfolio of energy that we strive to ensure we meet our mission, which is providing reliable, affordable, and increasingly clean energy that powers our customers every day. That's incredible scope, and it kind of leads into my next question. You mentioned the different interests that you're trying to advance and sort of the balancing different competing imperatives. You're charged with, of course, meeting the energy needs of people and businesses, reducing carbon emissions, keeping rates affordable for those customers. So how do you strike that balance and manage those different competing imperatives? We think we're doing pretty well. So I mentioned reliable, affordable, increasingly clean. I'll take them one by one. So on the reliability front, let's talk about Virginia, for example. So we're sitting here just about the end of October. So if you think about it, we're a little more than 300 days into the year in terms of hours. You're talking about about 7,300 hours we've had so far this year. Our customers have been without electricity during those 7,300 hours, on average, three. And if you subtract out major weather events over which we have no control, we're at about an hour and 45 minutes. So that's out of 7,300 hours. Now, being without electricity for three hours or an hour and 45 minutes or one minute can be very frustrating. And for businesses or people who are trying to conduct important business that requires electricity, I know that's very frustrating. And we intend to drive that number down as much as we can. But we're proud of our record of reliability. On the affordable front, when we compare ourselves to national averages, we're below, and we have been below the national average for residential customer rates for the last 18 years. If you go back to 2010 and you look at what has happened to our rates since then, our residential rates have grown by 
dropped a little bit more than 1% a year since 2010. Our commercial rates have grown by a little less than 1% a year since 2010. And if you think about what the rate of inflation has been over that time period, it's about 2.6%. So relative to other things that our customers are paying for, our rates are declining. So that's important to us. If you look at where we compare today, this summer, we are 21% below the national average. We're 36% below the East Coast regional average. That's for residential customers, but the story is the same for our industrial customers as well, the big businesses. We're 16.7% lower than the national average. We're 38.7% lower than the East Coast rate. And that's important when we think about trying to attract businesses to Virginia. We believe we're very reliable. We believe we're very affordable. And we are also getting cleaner. We've reduced our carbon emissions since 2005 by 46%. Now, you think about 2005 to 2023, that's 18 years of growth that we're serving more customers and we're serving more electric demand, but we've reduced carbon emissions by 46%. And we've reduced the emissions that other people think of by generating electricity, whether it's SOX or NOx or mercury, we've slashed those by 90% or more over the course of the last 25 or 30 years or so. So we've demonstrated in my mind that we can be reliable and we can be affordable and we can be increasingly clean. And the way we do that starts with a diverse mix of sources that we use to provide electricity to our customers. Nuclear, natural gas, solar, hydro, biomass, coal, now offshore wind project that we're working on at the moment. If we have those diverse sources and then we invest in the infrastructure needed to get our customers reliable service, so the wires that get that generation to people's homes and businesses, and we're efficient in our operations and we think we are extraordinarily efficient, that adds up to effectively achieving that critical mission that we have of reliable, affordable, and increasingly clean energy. Now, we've got work to do. We're seeing growth in demand expected in Virginia. That's great. That's exactly what we want. We need to make sure that we're smart about investing in new generation, that we're smart about investing in new wires, and that we're being innovative and thinking about the way we provide service to our customers. So that's our focus going forward. I think we've demonstrated an ability to achieve that mission in the past. I'm highly confident that we'll be able to continue to achieve it in the future. That's a great summary and overview, Bob. Now, you've set a goal for the future. I believe Dominion has a goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So that's going to be a goal that is going to require careful management of everything that you've just described. So tell us a little bit more about what the future looks like. How do you achieve that net zero carbon emissions goal by 2050 while also keeping up with the demand projections that we're seeing here in Virginia and elsewhere? As I mentioned, we've got work to do. But let's look a little bit about how we've performed. I mentioned that 46% reduction in carbon emissions. How do we achieve that? Well, when I started working at the company in 2005, we generated about half the electricity that we provided to our customers from coal. Today, that's closer to 10%, probably a little bit under 10% now. So what have we done? We have added in 
cleaner natural gas, highly efficient natural gas units. That's helped reduce carbon emissions. Now, they are not carbon-free. They're cleaner. They're lower carbon than coal, but they're not carbon-free. What they give us, however, is the confidence to be able to add in more renewables going forward. Renewables meaning largely solar and wind. And why do I say they give us that confidence? Solar and wind are not the industry parlance dispatchable. Solar operates when the sun is shining. Wind operates when the wind is blowing. It's dark at night. It's cloudy sometimes during the day. The wind doesn't always blow consistently. If we have these natural gas units that we can operate, they can fill in when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. So as we go forward, we'll add in more of these carbon-free sources like solar and wind, and we'll operate those gas units maybe differently, or we may have a different mix of those gas units. Some of the gas units that we operate today are designed to run all the time. We're proposing to add, for example, not too far from Richmond here at our existing Chesterfield Power Station, what's called a natural gas peaking plant. One that's not designed to operate all the time, but is designed to operate when demand is high and other generation sources are not there. Renewables will get us a long way toward achieving our goal of net zero by 2050, but they're not going to get us all the way. They're going to need help from battery storage. Most of the batteries that we use today and that are used across the industry are lithium-ion batteries, the same kind of battery in an electric vehicle or in your phone, and those are good for about four hours, which is great, but we're looking to get something longer duration. So we've actually just announced a pilot with a battery that is closer to 100 hours of duration. We're also looking to make sure that we're thinking about all other possible technologies that will help us close the gap to 2050. We operate a very important nuclear fleet that is carbon-free, round-the-clock. Those plants were initially licensed for 60 years. Many of them were built in the 70s. They will meet the end of their current licenses in the 2030s, initially licensed for 40 years, and then an additional 20-year license was granted some years ago. We're now in the process of licensing those out to 80 years. In fact, the Surrey Power Station in Virginia is currently the only nuclear power station in America that is licensed for from 60 to 80 years. North Anna will not too long from now licensed out to 80 years. Continuing to operate those nuclear plants is going to be critical to our ability to achieve net zero by 2050 because they provide so much carbon-free electricity. We're also looking at supplementing that existing nuclear fleet, what are called small modular reactors. Many of the component pieces, the reactors themselves are manufactured off-site and then installed on the site where we may want to put them. The Navy, if you think about it, uses small modular reactors on submarines and on aircraft carriers. They have not been deployed commercially yet in this country, but we're examining that possibility. There are a variety of technologies that are in development right now. And we're also looking at the possibility of using hydrogen. When hydrogen is combusted, it does not produce greenhouse gases. It can be created by taking water and through electrolysis, separating out the oxygen from the hydrogen. It's a possible that we might be able to blend hydrogen into an existing natural gas plant. It's possible someday that we might be able to operate a power plant with hydrogen. 
We have to think about how we create the hydrogen. If you use energy in the electrolyzer, if that energy is not carbon-free, then your whole process is not carbon-free. So maybe you use nuclear or renewables for the electrolyzer. There's a lot more to go on that front to get the technology working at scale and to get the costs in the right place. But these are the kinds of things we're examining. So if you sort of step back and say, do you know exactly the steps you're going to take to achieve your 2050 net zero goal? I would tell you that we know about 80% of the way there. That last 20% is going to require some new technologies. Maybe it's a small modular reactor, something that we're very high on. Maybe it's hydrogen. Maybe it's carbon capture and storage, which is a technology that is being investigated but not yet broadly applied. So with the right policy, with continued focus on technological innovations, I'm quite confident that we'll get there. But we have a lot of steps to take between now and there. So many of the things that you've mentioned from offshore wind, small modular reactors to hydrogen are places where Virginia has an opportunity to establish an early lead, if you will, as these technologies get deployed. And of course, we've worked closely with you and the Dominion team on that. I'd like you to take a minute to talk a little bit more about what's happening in offshore wind. The Coastal Virginia Offshore Wind Project is said to be the largest project Dominion has ever undertaken and going to be one of the largest offshore wind farms in the world once it's completed. Talk a little bit about what it means for Dominion and also for the renewable energy supply for both Virginia and the nation. You're right. It's a big project. Now, we've undertaken big projects before. You know, I mentioned those nuclear power plants. When we built those back in the 70s, those were huge projects for the company. When we built our hybrid energy center in southwest Virginia back in the 2010 timeframe, that was a large project for the company. We have a history of building large infrastructure projects for the benefit of our customers. And that's what this is. This is the opportunity to provide at large scale renewable electricity for our customers and, I believe, make an incredible difference in the Virginia economy. There will be, when we are done, 176 wind turbines 27 miles off the coast of Virginia. When the blade of the wind turbine is vertical, the top of the blade to the surface of the ocean is 820 feet. These things are massive. The first piece that gets driven into the ocean floor, the first eight of those arrived just a few days ago, and we had an event with the governor and the attorney general and the lieutenant governor, Congressman Bobby Scott, who represents the area. And the fact that all those people came was a sign of what this project means for the state and for the region. It's about a $10 billion investment over the course of its first 10 years because the fuel is free. We expect it to save customers about $3 billion in fuel costs. The other ways that we generate electricity, we have to buy fuel for all of them, whether it's fuel for our nuclear stations or natural gas for our gas plants or coal for our coal stations. This is taking advantage of free fuel, which is fabulous. It emits nothing. So when it's operating, it will prevent up to 5 million metric tons of carbon emissions per year that would otherwise be generated from different sources of electricity generation. But beyond the benefits to our customers from fuel savings and from reduced emissions, the economic benefits of this project will also be substantial. 
there are already 750 Virginia-based workers, nearly 530 of them in the Hampton Roads region working on this project. Those are construction workers, they're divers, they're ship workers, they're experts in cybersecurity. So a diversity of jobs already there. When it's in service, about 1,000 jobs supporting this project from soup to nuts. It'll create millions of dollars in tax revenue, tens of millions of dollars in pay and benefit, and hundreds of millions of dollars in total economic impact. And as the governor pointed out at the event where we were last week, we have an opportunity because of the way this project is advancing to become known as a hub for offshore wind along the East Coast. That has the ability to provide even more economic benefit to the Hampton Roads region and to the Virginia region. We see this project as being transformational for the way we operate our system because the amount of electricity it's going to generate, enough to power 660,000 homes and businesses when it's operating at peak output, and to transform the economy of Virginia and Hampton Roads, continuing to diversify the types of businesses who are locating and operating in Virginia. We're very proud of the project. It's on time and on budget. We've got a lot more work to do, but we're off to a great start. We're excited about it for a lot of the same reasons here at PDP. Turn our attention to nuclear. That's another place where Dominion is going to be focused as we look to the future. It's already playing an enormous role. And if you think back to when these plants were built in the 60s and into the 70s. I'm not sure that the folks building them, as much as they knew, I'm not sure they could have predicted the profound impact that those plants would have in Virginia. People weren't thinking about climate change and the warming of the planet back then, but to be able for us in Virginia to have the benefit of those plants today is really remarkable. So we need to keep them operating. I joke that there's probably not a lot in a nuclear plant today that was there when it was first constructed, but we'll have to make some additional investments to keep those plants operating reliably and safely going forward. We're in the process of doing that right now. It's really important for us to meet those goals that I outlined at the beginning of reliability, affordability, and increasingly clean for us to be able to continue to operate those. Bob, you said 87% of Virginia's carbon-free energy today is nuclear. Is that right? Correct. That's exactly right. So the rest comes from hydro and from solar today. And then as we've just discussed, we'll be putting a whole bunch of offshore wind on the grid. But yes, just a huge amount. And I know that a lot of the businesses that are looking to move to Virginia have sustainability goals and they're looking for a low carbon electric grid. And we've got one here today as compared to the rest of the country, thanks to those nuclear units. And we're expanding it rapidly thanks to the investments that we're making and the policies that we have in Virginia to give us that opportunity. But going forward, we're going to see electricity demand grow, a lot of it driven by data centers, we serve more of them probably than any other company like ours in the country. Just operating those existing units isn't going to be enough. And that's why we're looking at those small modular reactors. What we need in order to be able to invest in them is to make sure we understand that the technology will work as advertised by the developers. We need to make sure that we have the ability to put them in service in a cost-effective way for our customers. We have not operated small modular reactors before. They haven't been operated in this country. There are a number of 
developers working on different technologies that could be used commercially. So we're doing very thorough studies of those technologies, and we're also looking at sites. Another interesting thing about small modular reactors is they could be deployed potentially in different places than the reactors that we operate today. They do not need as large a safety buffer, if you will, as those units do. Where we have retired older units, maybe coal or oil units that we used to operate, and we have the transmission infrastructure still there, the wires, there are possibilities to be able to site them and take advantage of that existing infrastructure. So right now, our focus is technology selection and understanding the costs. We show in our long-range plan that we would start adding small modular reactors in early next decade. So let's make sure we understand the technology. Let's make sure we understand the costs. Let's find the right site. Once those things pencil out, then we'll go to our regulators and seek approval. You've been talking a lot about new technologies, innovations that can supply clean energy and meet the demands of the future. Let's talk about those demands. You mentioned the electrification of the economy, and of course, one of the major drivers of that is electric vehicles. So can you talk a little bit about what the demand forecast is looking like there? How do electric vehicles fit into Dominion's efforts to get to net zero carbon emissions? Once the price point, the purchase price point for electric vehicles starts to get closer to parity with non-electric vehicles, I think you'll see demand move pretty quickly. Electric vehicles are fun to drive. They're very cheap to operate. Our customers want to know that they're going to have enough electricity to get to and from wherever they're going. So this idea of range anxiety, I think, is real. As people drive them, though, they tend to get comfortable with the way they operate. There's a lot of pieces to figure out associated with that. But the important part for us is to make sure that we're providing the infrastructure for charging. And we are very focused on that. So we've done work, for example, in school buses, electric school buses, to make sure that there's charging infrastructure for communities that are converting their school buses. We were participating with other utilities in a coalition to make sure that there are fast charging stations network across the Midwest and South and up and down the Atlantic coast. And we try to work with, as carefully as we can, with customers who are going to be putting the charging stations in to make sure that we have our infrastructure ready for them and for customers that may be converting a fleet to electric vehicles. I'm not sure there's going to be sort of one silver bullet strategy. It's going to be a lot of different pieces. But if you think about it, we've built this machine, the electric grid, out over the course of more than a century. We've seen periods where demand went up fast. When people converted to electric appliances and to heat pumps, demand went up fast, and we were able to meet that demand. And I expect that we're going to be able to do the same thing here, but it's going to be a different level of demand than we have experienced over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. Our regional grid operator predicts that in our part of the grid, that demand for electricity is going to start going up by about 5% a year. A lot of that driven by data centers, but a chunk of it driven by electric vehicles. It's our obligation to make sure we're ready to meet that demand through the ways that we've already talked about, providing a diverse mix of generation and making investments in the wires part of the grid so that we can continue that reliability. 
Bob, you've landed on a topic that is sort of at the heart of the activity that we deal with in the economic development community every day. Over the last several years, we've been in what I'd describe as sort of the era of mega projects. We've seen a wave of very large advanced manufacturing and data center projects that are typically big consumers of power. And one of the critical location factors for these projects is the availability of power. And as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, increasingly these industrial customers are looking for clean power. How is Dominion and other power companies adjusting to some of these high demand sectors? You mentioned data centers. I would add advanced manufacturing, including a wave of semiconductors and electric vehicles, electric vehicle battery manufacturing. What does that look like? We've probably had as much experience with data center customers as any similar company in the country. Just since 2019, we've connected 75 data centers, and those are large capacity customers. So their total capacity is going to be three gigawatts, which sounds like a made up but it's a substantial electric demand. And we've been able to work with those customers to get that done. That requires us to invest, as I mentioned, in generation. It also requires us to invest in our electric transmission grid, which we've been doing to the tune of better than a billion dollars a year in electric transmission here in Virginia over the course of the last close to a decade that we've been at that level. We're probably going to have to ramp that up a little bit more in order to meet those customers' demand. For example, the indoor agriculture industry, a large facility a company called Aplenty, an indoor agriculture company, this idea of being able to grow food that we need in a controlled environment, a big user of electricity. We spent a lot of time working with them ahead of time, making sure we understood how quickly they would ramp up their energy needs and were able to achieve the schedule that they're looking for. I'm very proud of our ability to do that to help a company like that come to Virginia. Similarly, other projects that we've worked with, with Amazon, with Lego, Procter & Gamble, to make sure that we're meeting their needs. Fundamental to all that is communication. Our ability to communicate with those customers, different customers are gonna have different needs. We need to listen to them and communicate well so that we can help them achieve what they're trying to achieve. Our company thrives when the communities in which we do business thrive. And the way for those communities to thrive is to grow their economic base. Bob, thank you so much for joining me for this uh, edition of the Virginia Economic Review Podcast. Such a pleasure to talk with you and such a delight to work with you every day to advance economic development and other needs in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.